right, church family. Well, we just sang, Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness stretches to the sky. I will lift my voice to worship you, my King. We're going to continue to do that. We've, we've, we've lifted our voices to the King. Now let's lift our hearts and our minds in the study of the King's Word together. Amen? Amen. To help us do that, I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and join me in the New Testament epistle of 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, if you could make your way there. If you need a Bible this morning, you didn't get get out of the house with your Bible because you were shoveling snow or whatever it was, we can supply you with a Bible. So 1 John chapter 4, just keep that hand up. And there's a note page. If you wouldn't gra- would grab that note page, I would appreciate that because that will be helpful along the way. Two and a half years ago, the Bible Church sent a small team to Turkey under Pastor Brandon's leadership, and the purpose of this trip was exploratory. Might God want our church family to be involved in a more overt way in the Muslim world? That was the the question that was on the table. Well, that question remains on the table because we haven't gotten a definitive answer to the question yet. Um, I'm excited about the thought that maybe one day we will be involved in the Muslim world, but the Lord hasn't green-lighted the thought. But we did send this team to Turkey, and I was a part of that team. And it was while on this trip that we had a chance to tour one of the most incredible archaeological sites in the world, the ancient city of Ephesus. Uh, words really, I mean, they really cannot describe what you see, what you feel, what you experience as you walk on the pavement and the streets that were, were walked on by the Apostle Paul and you tread on those stones that, that uh, the, the beloved disciple John, the one who wrote the epistle of 1 John, he walked on the very stones that you're standing on. But here's the thing. You cannot get to any of that extraordinary archaeological stuff until you pass by a number of tourist shops that are outside the entrance to the ancient site. Now, one of the shops that I thought definitely merited a memory-preserving picture (laughs) on this particular day was this picture right here. (laughs) Couldn't pass that up. Genuine fake watches. So uh, if you go to Ephesus, you're going you're gonna to see that for sure. Now, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? Yeah. That qualifies as an oxymoron, genuine fake watches. You, you've seen these watches, haven't you, um, before? Uh, you can buy them on the streets of New York City or, or Los Angeles, maybe even on, in Hemet. I don't know that for sure. But, but the, the watch will say Rolex or Omega or Gucci on, on the face of it, and it looks like a Rolex. Uh, But it is not a Rolex. And you know it's not a Rolex because you can buy it for $15. Or, as the shopkeeper will say, two for 25, right? (laughs) He'll tell you that. Genuine fake watches. Well, just like there are today genuine fakes outside of the gates of the ancient city of Ephesus, there were inside that ancient first century city, inside the churches that the apostle John pastored and cared for, there were genuine fake watch-like people. What I mean by that, there were people in the churches that looked 
like Christians. They said they were Christians. They used Christian words and phrases. But they were not Christians. They were false teachers. And they were false disciples. And as was in the, the case in the first century, so it is the case in the 21st century. Genuine fakes can be found in virtually any church, in any time, and any place. John writes the epistle of 1 John to help anyone who will take the time to read and study his letter. He, he writes the letter to help us to be able to tell the real Christian from the fake one. Looks and talks are not reliable indicators of someone who is real, someone who's really a genuine, saved by grace through faith in Jesus, follower of him, a lover of the Lord God through faith in Jesus. John will say over and over in this letter, and you know this by now if you've shared the series with us from the beginning, you can always tell the real from the fake in three distinct ways, by what they believe, by how they behave, and by how they love. Yes, this is, this is familiar ground for most of you. Now, under the guiding inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the aged apostle writes again in a love-focused direction in the next section now that comes into view for us in our ongoing verse-by-verse -verse study of this letter. And we are today in chapter 4, verses 17 to 21. But let's get a running start at verse 17 by backing up to verse 13. That's where I'm going to start our reading. Um, it's, it's ground we were over the last time we were together here in 1 John. So it'll sound a little bit familiar to you, but I just want us to get warmed up for what comes in 17 and following. So here's what we read, verse, thir verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides or remains in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Verse 17, new ground. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this command we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And we just say, Holy Spirit, bring your word to life, as Kelly asked a moment ago. Amen and amen. Well, we're going to be con concentrating most of our effort on verses 17 and 18 this morning because they introduce some wonderful new truth to us that we've not been exposed to 
yet. There are other parts of the passage that we just read that we've already heard John uh, admonish us toward several times in the letter. So we're going to camp out mostly in verses 17 and 18. Now John, as he has done from the opening chapter, continues to draw contrasts. In chapter 1, the contrast between light and darkness. Truth versus falsehood. Uh, Later on in the chapter, love versus hate. The difference between those who are experiencing spiritual life in Jesus and those who are not experiencing that kind of life. Today we add to this list of contrasts fear and love. Fear versus love. John says that they are mutually exclusive, fear and love. Where fear reigns, love is not present. Where love is present, fear cannot be. That's what John says in these verses. For those of us who find it easy to maybe turn in a fearful or or an anxious direction, it's just part of kind of how we're wired, we're inclined to go in in fearful directions with with life. This really could be a difference-making morning for us. And and verses 17 and 18 might well become two of our all-time favorite verses in the Bible. We'll just have to see what happens with that. Now, perhaps you will recognize this very famous uh, painting. You do recognize it, yeah, by Edvard uh, Munch, a a Norwegian artist. Uh, He painted this picture in 1893, and it's called The Scream. Considered by the art world to be second only to the Mona Lisa as the most recognized human form in Western art. It is the iconic depiction of panic and fear. Monk in his diary wrote that the inspiration for this painting was himself. Exhausted and feeling ill, he says, I was crossing a bridge when I was suddenly overcome and caught up in a crushing wave of anxious fear. The scream. In fact, so good a job did Monk of capturing fear-filled anxiety that his painting has made its way into the emoji library on your phone. Did you know that? Do you recognize that emoji? Yeah, it's there, isn't it? And if if, if you're not aware of that, you're saying, I got it. I've got to pull my phone out and check that right now and see if it's in my library. Don't do that. Save that for after service. Don't look on your phone right now. But have you ever used that emoji? <laughs> you don't have to answer that. But fear, fear, the picture captures that. It is such a universally understood emotion and so reflective of the human condition. When Franklin Roosevelt took the stage and he delivered his first inaugural address as president in the year 1933, the depression was in full swing. Uh, The people of our country were afraid. A quarter of the nation was unemployed at that time. As he spoke those now famous words, the only thing we have to fear is Fear. fear itself. You know the speech. You know the words. That's what he said to the people. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Well, they were afraid. But I think when Roosevelt spoke those words, he could not have begun to fathom the face of his country a mere 85 years later in our time. Fear 
It is everywhere in our culture. We fear rejection, poverty, cancer, unemployment, birthdays, some of us, old age, pain, heights, public speaking, small enclosed spaces, snakes, spiders, abandonment, political turmoil, tax increases, things that go bump in the night, terrorist attacks, being alone or being in crowds. Actually, just about anything that exists can be something that someone is afraid of. Agreed? In fact, do you think anybody could be afraid of these guys? Do you think? Yep, they can. They actually can. There is a condition known as sinophobia. It's a fear of dogs and puppies. (laughs) None of you have that fear, I'm guessing, right? But for some people, it's real. Now, I'm not going to ask you to speak it out. But is there something today that you are genuinely afraid of? What are you most afraid of? If you are afraid of something, what what would be at the top of your list of fears? Don't answer that out loud. One secular writer put it this way. The fears of modern life have a stranglehold on people. We lock our doors, we say our prayers, and we still can't get to sleep at night. Until we find a way to resist fear, we'll live at the mercy of it and be party to the consequences. That's really true. It's probably safe to say, church family, that the greatest of all human fears across time, across cultures, is the fear of death. The fear of death and especially the fear of what is waiting on the other side of the grave. The Holy Spirit, through John, not only supplies us today with the way to resist fear, he gives us the way to have a truly fearless confidence in the face of the greatest fear of all fears, the fear of death and the fear of what follows, the day when each of us stands before holy God and Savior Jesus and we give an account of our life. This section is all about that. On your note page then, near the top, let's kind of jump in here. Jesus said, fear this. Exclamation point. Are you with me on your note page? You there? Now, do you know what phrase Jesus repeats more than any other phrase in the Gospels? More than believe or trust or listen or pray or even love. Do you know what what admonition he repeats more than any other? Do not be afraid. You got it. Absolutely. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. No other phrase that he repeats more than that phrase. Which is why when we hear Jesus say what he does in Matthew 10, 28, we should really give our attention to to that. Now the context for this is, is Jesus is sending his disciples out for their very first formal ministry outreach. They're about to go out and proclaim Jesus. And and in kind of what we would consider to be like maybe a pregame speech or pep talk, Jesus warns his disciples about what they can expect when they go out to minister in his name. 
And he'll tell them that if the master and teacher is hated and accused of being in league with Satan, which is what the, the religious leadership was saying about Jesus, Jesus says, if that's what they're saying about me and you are my disciples, well, you can be absolutely sure that they're going to malign and persecute and hate you like they hate me. So as you go out, just know that's the way it's going to be. But then Jesus says this, verse 26 of Matthew chapter 10. Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be, be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, what? Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus makes a statement in verse 28 that should arrest the attention of every living, breathing person in the world, from the very young to the oldest of the old. God has the power, Jesus says. He has the authority to sentence any person to an eternal separation from him in hell forever. Fear him, Jesus says. Revere him. Humbly bow down before him and give your life, give your all to him. Because a day of judgment is surely coming when every soul who has ever lived or is yet to live is going to stand before him. Fear him. Now this day of judgment is exactly what John is thinking about in verses 17 and 18. He was there in Matthew chapter 10 when Jesus made this declaration about billions of souls whose eternity in hell will be irrevocably defined by the decree of holy God and Savior Jesus. John was there. He heard Jesus say this. Fear this. Fear this. But John here in these verses that are before us now says, Not you, Christian. Not you. Don't you fear this. Not you. Not you. Do not fear the day of coming judgment. That's what John says. Now back in chapter 2 of 1 John, he made this statement in verse 28. And now little children abide or remain in him, that is in Jesus. Don't forsake him for some false gospel, some man-made way to get to God. Don't do that. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have, what's the next word? Confidence. And not shrink from him in shame or in fear at his what? At his coming. John says, listen, Jesus is coming back. He promised us that. Do you believe that, Christian? He is coming back. That is an absolute for sure thing that is going to happen. He's coming back, and when he does, he's not going to be coming back as the humble Savior. He's going to be coming back as the victorious conquering king, right? That's how he's coming back. And you don't want to be afraid when he comes. You need not be afraid. 
when he comes, John says. But what he just alludes to in verse 28 of chapter 2, he more fully explains now in verses 17 and 18. Verse 17, by this is love perfected or, or brought to maturity or made complete or, or given its fullest form. By this is love perfected with us, among us, in us, so that we may have, what's the word? Confidence. There's that same word that was in 28. The word is parousia in the Greek. It means bold assurance. By this is love fully formed in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. The day of judgment. The day we stand before holy God. John's saying that confidence, bold assurance, fearless confidence right now, even as the day of a judgment is approaching, is the experience of every real Christian. It is to be our experience. No fear. Those who not only grasp the gospel of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, but also grasp how fully they have been loved by God through Jesus, they are to have no fear when they think about the day of judgment. That's what John says. Bold confidence. Fearless confidence. Fearless assurance. It's the experience. It's the right, John would say, for, of, of every Christian right now who loves Jesus and is in him by faith to live life without fear. Fear of judgment. Would that be you this morning? Does that describe you today? Living fearlessly? In Jesus. Whenever the Christian thinks ahead to the time of God's certain and righteous judgment, where hell is one of the possible verdicts, there's no fear. There's no fear at all. Again, I would ask you, are you experiencing right now in your Christian life no fear living? Is that you? The Holy Spirit is telling us through John that such is to be our daily experience. Such is to be our privilege and our joy as Christians, real Christians. So John actually explains this, how, how God's love overcomes our fear, and he does this in the second half of verse 17 and then into verse 18. Look one more time at verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence Bold assurance for the day of judgment. Why can we have that, John? Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Brothers and sisters, why is it that we can have a no fear, bold confidence in the face of holy judgment? Why is that? Because as Jesus is in heaven right now, so also are we in the eyes of God in this world. That's what John just said. This is a stunning, almost incomprehensible statement. In fact, so stunning, so incomprehensible, I want you to read it out loud with me. Just the red portion that's right there on the screen. Can we read it out loud together? Let's do it. Because as he, Jesus, is, 
so also are we in this world. Do you believe that? Do you know what it means? <laughs> now, if this, if this part of verse 17 is not underlined and highlighted and starred and circled in your Bible, it needs to be. It should be. That'll be a little hard on your phone, maybe, or your iPad, but make it happen. What this means, fellow Christian, is that, that the Father sees you right now the way he sees Jesus right now. And the way he treats you right now is the way that he treats Jesus right now. On the day that you gave your heart, your life to God through simple, genuine, sincere confession and faith in what Jesus did for you on the cross, dying the death that you deserve for the sins that you had committed, bearing God's wrath against your sin by standing in your place, His blood for your life. In that moment when you confessed faith in the Lord Jesus, in His death and His resurrection, God, Scripture says, applied to your life forever the sinless righteousness of Jesus. That's what it says. He imputed. That's that's the word that you would hear in a seminary classroom. God imputed the righteous life of Jesus onto your life. Imputed means to put on, to place on. He clothes you in Jesus' sinless standing, His sinless righteousness, so that when God looks at you right now, He does not see sinful you. He sees Jesus' righteous life reflected back at Him. As He is so also are we in this world. Does that not blow your mind? But you cannot take my word for this. You must read this for yourself as God has given it to you. This is a truth so important. The righteous life of Jesus imputed to you upon your confession of faith in Him. So that when God looks at sinful you, he sees righteous Jesus. You need to read that for yourself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. God imputes your sin onto Jesus at the moment of the cross. So that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. God imputes his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, onto you. All of the guilt, all of the the shame, all of the sin, the sentence of hell that comes with it, God placed all of that on Jesus at the cross. And then he took the righteous, sinless life of Jesus and he applies it to you. When you put your faith in Jesus, that's what happened. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. But now a righteous Uh, from God apart from law apart from doing good works has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify this righteousness from God comes through what faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe in him right his righteousness imputed to you to me and in Philippians chapter 3 verse 9 Paul tells us how he sees himself in his standing before God that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from doing good things, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Amen and amen. Someday, fellow Christian, we're going to stand before God's holy, holy, holy throne as confidently as Jesus does right now. Because we're going to be wearing Jesus' righteousness as the imputed love gift of the Father to us. We will have no fear on that day. Only bold, confident assurance. But John's point, and we don't want to miss this, is that we, we, we are to have that very same no-fear confidence, not just on that day that is in the future. We're to have that no-fear confidence when? Right now, today, this moment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. John is telling us that when we are are as God's children, and when we grasp the extent to which we have been loved by Him through Jesus in the past, and we grasp the depth to which we are loved by Him in the present through Jesus, and we grasp the length to which we will be loved by Him in the future by Jesus, we need have no fear of the return of Jesus, or if we die, what awaits us on the other side. No fear. Now, if you flip your note page over, this is how John says it in verse 18. There is no fear in love, God's love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, that word casts there, it's the Greek word that means to throw out or to, to hurl. Okay, that's what that word means. It's, it's kind of like, and I'm really going to date myself here, but some of you are going to be right here with me. You're going to know this. When I think of the word casts and what it means, uh, it, it takes me back to the old TV westerns, the cowboy shows on television when you were growing up. And you remember those, the scene? In every show this happened, almost. Someone's in a saloon and doesn't pay their tab, or or uh, the, the the owner ma- makes the owner mad, and and so all of a sudden the scene shifts to the outside of the saloon as the unwanted cowboy comes flying out those double doors, right, and sprawls out in the street, right, been hurled out. That's the sense of this word. So I hope you won't think of this every time that you come to this passage, but, but it's, very, it's, it's a really vivid picture. When we really and truly grasp the love that God has for us in Jesus, that mature, well-formed, perfected love, when that love grabs fear, especially the fear of judgment, it takes it, and what does it do? It hurls it. It casts it out. It banishes it. One translation uses that word. And the reason this is true, says John, is because fear involves punishment. And believers who are perfected in the love of Jesus do do not face a final punishment 
You do not face a final judgment because Jesus already took that punishment and that judgment for you at the cross. No fear. Because fear has to do with punishment and that's not in your story because of Jesus. Does that sound too good to be true? It does sound too good to be true. But God has made it true. But check this out. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified. That word means pronounced not guilty in the court of heaven. Therefore, since we have been justified by Jesus' blood, how much more shall we be saved from him, by him from the what? From the wrath of God. From the judgment of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. For you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the what? The wrath to come, the judgment to come. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath or judgment, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we say, amen and amen. Church family, any professing Christian right now who fears God's judgment is not experiencing the love of him that he intends or desires for them to experience. Someone who professes Jesus as Savior and Lord but fears the imminent return of Jesus or the judgment of God. They evidence that something is seriously wrong in their understanding of God, in their relationship with Him through Jesus. They're missing the key component of His love. At the very least, they have an immature, stunted, weak understanding of how much God loves them and how His love is working for them, not against them. There is no fear in love, but perfect love all fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Fellow Christian, what what John is essentially telling us is that in order for you and I to go forward in our lives without any hint, without any trace of fear concerning future judgment, we must continually be looking back at the cross of Jesus. Would you agree with that? In order to go forward without fear, we need to be what? Looking back at this. All the time. All the time. In fact, is this not precisely what John does in this section? Which is why I started our reading not at verse 17 this morning, but back up there at verse 13. Take a look at verses 14 and 16 one more time. Because this is how John steps into the moment of 17 and 18. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. He's talking about the cross. John's looking back to Calvary where love hung for our sin. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Look back in order to go forward without fear. The Apostle Paul does the very same thing in Romans chapter 5. And it's too good not to bring it to your attention. 
Listen to what Paul says, looking back in order to go forward without fear. Verse 6, for a while we were still weak, that's why we were still dead in our sin. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone would dare even to die. But God shows his, what's the next word, church? His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Looking back. Now he's going to look forward. Since therefore we have now been justified, that means again, declared not guilty, forgiven in the court of heaven, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the, the wrath of God, the judgment of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we've been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul would say, far from living in in fear of judgment, the real Christian is going to be rejoicing, praising, worshiping, celebrating furiously and fearlessly because they've been so loved by God through Jesus. If he loved us enough to die for us when we were sin-condemned and enemies of him, how must he love us now that we've been bought by his blood? If he didn't spare Jesus but gave him up for us when we were at our worst, how will he not continue to love us all the way into eternity through Jesus? Because we're his blood-bought kids, right? If we realize that these actions of God flow from his absolute commitment to love us forever, not only do we not fear eternal punishment, we really have no reason to fear anything in this world. Would you agree with that? I mean, if, if Jesus and God have, have, have saved us from the very worst fear of all, death and judgment, if they've done that, is there anything in this world, anything in your life that, that you need to be afraid of? I'm not convinced. What did you, no? You sure? Now, I realize this is beyond the scope of what John is trying to say here, but, but, but try this with me for a moment. What are you afraid of right now if you answered in your own mind uh, something to the question I asked earlier about are you afraid of something? Think about whatever that is. If there is a fear, whatever that is, or, or perhaps whoever it is, bring that to mind. Think about that fear, and now I would ask you to bring to mind the image of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the God-man. Jesus, but see him hanging on the cross. Jesus, hanging on the cross and loving you. Jesus, hanging on the cross, bleeding, struggling to breathe, ravaged by thirst. Jesus crying out, It is finished. God bleeding and dying for you because he loves you. Think about that. Now think again about that fear, whatever it is. 
If Jesus' love sees you from hell to heaven, will he not see you through whatever earthly fear you are facing? Perfect love, what does it do? Casts out fear. Throws it out, banishes it away. The cross is love's perfection. It is the Father's, I love you, to you. It is Jesus' declaration, I love you. He gave himself for my eternal good, not just for the day of judgment, but for every day between now and then. Amen? Life without fear. In our war with fear, we we must continually look back Look back at the cross as God's eternal statement of his commitment to love us, save us, forgive us, and deliver us from sin's punishment. And at the same time, we look back at the cross in order to have no fear for all the stuff that's in the middle of our lives. In fact, the Holy Spirit, through John, lays the most beautiful capstone over all of this incredible truth by saying in verse 19, we love him and each other only because why? Because he loved us first. God loved us first. When we love God back with the perfected love that John is speaking of, a seasoned, mature, well-formed love that banishes the judgment idea out of our hearts and and gives us confidence in the day-to-day, when we love with that kind of love, We love only because God first initiated it. We didn't come up with it. It was his idea. It was his perfect eternal love that first sovereignly drew us to himself and only his ongoing love that will keep us safe and saved. And we love him for it. Don't you love Jesus for his love for you? We love him for that. John wraps all of this up with a warning. Now, challenging us to take this to a practical place. You have been loved with this incredible love. This, this, this love that banishes fear away from your life. Now, you take that love and you share that with those who don't know Jesus yet. It's verses 19, verses 20 and 21, actually. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a what? He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this command we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We've heard these admonitions at least three times before this in the letter. So we spent some time with these thoughts. John would say, to claim to love the invisible God, but at the same time not to show love to his people, That can't happen. That's hypocrisy. Let there be no confusion. Real Christians love God practically by loving others practically. Giving while seeking nothing in return. Forgiving without conditions or strings. Bearing each other's burdens. Sacrificing to meet needs. Mindful of Jesus' words from Matthew 25 that when you do this to the least of any of these, you have done it unto me, Jesus says. Loving like that. Not hypocritically. So John takes it to the practical place that we would expect him to. If you've been loved like God loves you, 
How can you not love those around you and love him back? Authentically, genuinely, in a real way. Now I'm going to ask you to close your Bible. I'm about to wrap up here. And as we return to the theme that has really occupied us this morning, having fearless confidence for the day of judgment, let me take you for just one moment to the closing days of the life of the Apostle Paul. As Jesus had warned his disciples back in Matthew 10, you remember a few moments ago we were talking about that, saying that if you live boldly for Jesus, you're going to be hated, you're going to be persecuted, you may even be killed. So those words of Jesus have now proven themselves to be true in Paul's life. He's, he's in prison in, in Rome, the Mamertine Dungeon, for having loved Jesus and proclaimed him boldly and fearlessly. He's now in prison. His, his life will be t- taken from him um, in a matter of days. He writes a letter to a beloved friend. His name is Timothy. Paul had mentored Timothy. Timothy's now a pastor in Ephesus. And here's what he writes. Having faithfully declared Jesus. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to be here in this prison for Jesus' sake. I'm not ashamed. Because I, what? I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What day? Judgment day. The day when he stands before God. Judgment day. The day when all the unbelieving of all the ages will stand before God. Paul says, I know because I believe in Jesus that I will not be a part of that. Because I have believed in Jesus. And he took my judgment so that I never would have to. Now can you say with the Apostle Paul right now, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced in my heart that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him against that day. Can you say that? Then you can live without fear for the rest of your life. Amen and amen. By this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. As he is, so am I in this world. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh, what can we say, Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father and Holy Spirit? What can we say? But wow, you truly have taken away fear in our lives. Certainly you have addressed the issue of fear of judgment. But because you have taken away that fear, there is no other fear in our life that 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 needs dog our heels or trouble our hearts and our minds and keep us awake at night. For all those are lesser things compared to judgment. But you have taken that fear away. Oh, how we thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us the way you do. And if there be one in this room this morning, even one 
who does not know what it means to live with fearless confidence in the face of judgment. May today be the day when that changes. If that be you this morning, if you have not given your life to Jesus in simple saving faith, let his love wash over you. Allow him to love you from hell to heaven and take away all fear in your life. If we can help you in that journey, just pull us aside. We'd be glad to do that. Lord, now we want to sing about your love for us. We want to release some of the things that have been building up in our hearts. We want to express our gratitude to you for the great love that you have shown us. And oh, how we thank you for taking away fear and replacing it with joy. In Jesus' name we say it. And all God's people say, amen and amen.